I, I had uh, all of about an hour's sleep last night. Uh, it was just one of these kind of things where, you know, in, in, they used to have things where they'd call night watches, where people would pray all night and, uh, you know, just have a, periodically pray throughout the night, seek the Lord. And I would like you to think that that's what I was uh, uh, doing. I had no intention of doing this. But I, I did have a, a real restlessness in my spirit that just, uh, where I ended up, uh, you know, doing a lot of praying, and there's a lot of struggling going on. And, and what that leads me to believe is that, the, the, the message that I want to bring this morning and the series that we're going to be doing is, is something that the enemy doesn't like. Okay, that's the kind of sense I had. Um, and so that, that's good news. The bad news is that when I don't, uh, you know, when I don't sleep, it doesn't like make me tired. It kind of does the opposite to me. I, I get kind of uh, wiry and my, my sensoring devices go down. So watch it. Paul's saying, oh no, start praying people. <laughs> But between the Holy Spirit and, and some Mountain Dew, I think we're going to make it through this thing. <laughs> okay, let's turn to Romans chapter 7. Right now, quick. Romans chapter 7. Start with verse 4. Who knows? Romans chapter 7. I'm going to take a little smorgasbord. I'd like to read this whole chapter, but uh, I, I think I'll just give you a sampling of it. Romans chapter 7. I'll first read verse 4. Paul says, so my brothers, you also died to the law through the body of Christ. You died to the law. I want you to get that phrase. You died to the law through the body of Christ. That is the death of Christ. When Christ died, you died to the, to the law. That you might belong to another, to him who was raised from the dead, in order that we might bear fruit to God. Note the, the logic here. Christ died, so you died to the law. And because the reason why you died to the law is so that you might belong to another. You might have a relationship with Christ. As long as the law is there, you can't have a relationship with Christ. And if you have a relationship with Christ that has nothing to do with the law, then you're going to bear fruit, the fruit of the Spirit. Just hold that in your mind. Verse 14. This is Paul now. The Apostle Paul, the spiritual one. Listen how much like you and me he sounds. We know that the law is spiritual, but I am unspiritual, sold as a slave to sin. I do not understand what I do. For what I want to do, I do not do. But what I hate, that's what I do. And if I do what I do not want to do, I agree that the law is good. As it is, it is no longer I myself who do it, but it is sin living in me. I know that nothing good lives in me, that is in my sinful nature. For I have the desire to do what is good, but I cannot carry it out. I have the desire to do what is good, but I cannot carry it out. Now if I do what I do not want to do, it is no longer I who do it, but it is sin living in me that does it. Sounds like he had too much Mountain Dewey and he wrote that. Too many do's and don't do's, and, but you got the gist of it. And finally, chapter 8, starting with verse 1. Therefore... In the light of all this, can't do what I want to do, do do what I don't want to do stuff, therefore, he says, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Because through Christ Jesus, the law of the Spirit of life set me free from the law of sin and death. For what the law was powerless to do, in that it was weakened by the sinful nature, God did by sending His own Son in the likeness of sinful man to be a sin offering. And so He condemns sin in sinful man 
in order that the righteous requirements of the law might be fully met in us who do not live according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. There is so much stuff packed into that. And that's part of what I was struggling with. How do I begin to get this out? It's like I've got this... I have trouble translating paragraphs in my brain to sentences in my tongue in the first place. That's why I stutter. It's like I get a traffic jam right at the base of my tongue because all the words want to come out at the same time. But with this, there's like so much incredible stuff. How do you begin to break it down? That's part of what I'm struggling with. There's just so much truth involved in this. Let's uh, let's start with a word of prayer. Lord, I ask that your spirit would really have sovereignty here this morning. We sung, Lord, that... As the deer pants for the water, so our soul longs for you. You alone, Lord, are our heart's desire. Lord, if that means anything, it means that you and not our job are what our lives are about. And you and not this church is what our lives are about. And you and not this sermon is what our lives are about. You alone are our heart's desire. And everything else, Lord God, is a footnote to that. I pray, Lord God, that that be the order and priority here this morning. Help me, Lord God, to relax in the sufficiency of your word and in the sufficiency of your spirit to let your word go forth. Free me, Lord God, from the feeling like I need to somehow make my words big enough to the reality, the incredible reality that's contained in these passages. And most of all, Lord, I pray for freedom. We need to be free from this law kind of thinking, and I pray that that would happen this morning. In your name we pray. Amen. We're starting a a series, a nine-part series, on uh, how to change our lives, how to experience trans- transforming power in our life. We'll take a one-week break from this next week as I'm going to be doing the baccalaureate service at, uh, at Bethel. But uh, by and large, this will take us through July. This is a fundamental issue uh, in Christianity. I can't think of anything really that's more fundamental than this. The issue is, how do we go about changing ourselves? Involved in that question is the the question of, what role does grace have and law have in our life? What role, what's the relationship between what the spirit does and what the flesh does in our life? It's a foundational issue. This is why I want to deal with it at this point, this early point in this church's history, because what I want to lay down here is some, some real foundational teaching about what God does in our life and the way that we are to approach issues in our life. How do we change? Think of areas in your life, and every person in this room has got areas in your life like this, that need to be changed. You have the same old personality traits, and they go on and on and on, and you wonder if you'll ever outgrow them. Is there anyone else like this? Will you ever stop being such a temperamental person? Will you ever get control of your temper? Or are you always going to be a kind of a person with a short fuse? How do we become more patient to our spouses and more patient to our kids? When we are, it seems by nature, it seems by genes, it seems by predestination or something, we're impatient people. How do we become more loving when our hearts just feel cold? How do we become more forgiving when we don't feel like forgiving? You know in your mind that you should forgive, that you should let this person go, and yet the anger, the bitterness hangs in there. How do you change that? How do you change from being a chronically depressed person to a person who experiences joy? How do you do something like that? How do you control lust in your life? 
How do you get a grip on other habits in your life? How do you control your thought processes? So often we just say, well, that's just the way I am. And we settle for something far below what God would have us to walk in. That's the issue. There's a Bethel student I talked to several years ago now who in some ways was very typical, I think, of the ordinary Christian. Although she was out loud about her issues and maybe her issues were a little extreme, but I think it, it, it's, it's fairly typical of, of what a lot of Christians experience a lot of the time. Her problem that she came to me with, me with was this. She said, I feel like in my Christianity it's all external. I feel like I'm just going through the motions. I go to church because I'm supposed to go to church, and I worship God because I'm supposed to worship God, and I pray because I'm supposed to pray, and I do all of that kind of stuff, but it, it just doesn't seem real to me. Do you ever feel like that? It's like, well, where's the reality to this sort of stuff? Everyone's talking about the Spirit of God. Everyone's talking about the supernatural. Everyone's talking about spiritual warfare. Everyone's talking about joy, but I don't feel it on the inside. I maybe do it on the outside because I'm supposed to. That's the expectation. That's what good Christians do, but I feel empty. And so she said, she feels kind of alienated among Christians. Because she looks around and she sees all these good-looking people who really are on fire for God, but she doesn't feel any kind of zeal for God. She doesn't feel any kind of passion for Christianity. She doesn't feel any kind of excitement. She never experiences the reality of things. So she feels out of place. She feels alienated. And she has no power to overcome some of the personality traits in her life that she should overcome. Her tendency for jealousy and envy was there. And so she, like many, many, many Christians, are left wondering, where is the reality in this whole thing? Where's the supernatural in this whole thing? Where's the power in this whole thing? When does the rubber hit the road? She went, at two different times, she was out loud about these issues to different people. She was even ashamed of doing this. She was even, I could see the shame on her when she talked to me. She felt ashamed that when she said, you know, I don't really think I love God. I wonder if I'm for real. I wonder if I'm genuine. Maybe I'm just a hypocrite. And there's a shame as she was even saying this. It was just out of desperation that she said it. And twice before she'd gone to people for some advice, she went to her pastor. And she went to her parents. And she was out loud about these issues. And what she got was what I'd like to call the Nike philosophy. It really is the law, a version of the law. When we hear Paul talk about the law, we sometimes think, well, that had to do with the Old Testament and the 613 rules that are part of the law and the ripping off of doves' heads and all the blood scattered and all the do's and don'ts and that kind of stuff. And we know that we're free from that, so we think that we're free from the law. But as a matter of fact, the law, when we say the law, we mean something much broader than that. We say something much broader than that. The law is, I'd say, I typify it by the, the, the Nike commercials they used to have on television. With a, the t they used to sell the tennis shoes this way. Maybe they still do. With that phrase, just do it. Just do it. That's the answer to all problems. Just do it. You got a problem? Stop it. <laughs> That's the end of it. So she goes to her pastor and she says, you know, something's wrong. I feel kind of empty. I feel really vacuous on the inside. I feel like I'm going through the motions. Basically, he said was, just do it. You ought to be loving God. Christians love God. You ought to be loving God. Don't you love God? No, that's why I'm talking to you. You ought to be on fire for God. You ought to be zealous for the Lord. You ought to be, you should be, you got to be, you better be, blah, 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 blah. And then comes a little bit of uh, motivational incentives to get her to just do it. Usually taken in the form of some kind of guilt or shame. How much, say, how much have you been praying lately? 
Have you been really seeking the Lord and have you been praying to the Lord and have you been sincere about it? And uh, what's your Bible reading like? Have you really been reading the Bible sufficiently? And they never tell you how much sufficiently is. It's kind of a vague thing here. But so you just kind of, well, whatever you're doing is probably not sufficient. Have you been spending time in the Word on a regular basis? And is your heart open to the Lord? And have you been seeking the Lord continually? Has, has, has your mind been godly? Have you been thinking on godly things? And just out of curiosity, when was the last time that you witnessed to some friends? You know, a lot of times when the Lord withdraws the Spirit from us, it's because we haven't really been witnessing the way we ought to be. And what kind of habits are there in your life? What goes on behind closed doors? And all the while, this young lady is shrinking and shriveling up and feeling worse and feeling lousy. Just do it! Stop your bad behavior. Start your good behavior. Get your engines going. Rev them up. Broom. Go. Just do it. And that's all there is to it. Just do it. You got in the groove and you knew it. There's three assumptions going on here with this. This is what I'd call the law approach. The law approach to, to, to problems. And it's, it, and it's really pervasive. The law approach. It assumes several things. It assumes, first of all, that the way you get better in life is by doing more. The way you get better is by doing more. As though jogging on wounded knees could make them better. Something I had to learn the hard way. If you're weak, if you're tired, if there's sin, if there's problems, then you just got to do more things. Put forth more energy. Put forth more effort. And that will make you better. The second assumption is, is, is the belief. This is the law approach, the Nike philosophy. The belief is that if you just make a person feel bad enough about where they are, they're going to change for the better. Negative motivation, that always works. Make a person feel lousy, miserable, wormy, and whatnot, and they're going to change. The third assumption is that the way you fix a person on the inside is by manipulating their behavior on the outside. The way you fix their heart is by addressing their behavior. Just do it. And it's prevalent. It's prevalent. We don't do the law like the Old Testament does the law, but we frequently do the law in other ways. And it works. If you want to get people to behave a certain way, how many times have you heard sermons like this? Or maybe you haven't, but, but this, you know, this is maybe a little extreme, a little bit of a caricature, but the flavor is there. The giving's down a little bit in the church. So the preacher decides to talk about... Tithing. A lot of churches talk about money an awful lot. So you remind people that God, if you don't give a certain percentage, if you don't do this, then you are robbing God, and you ought not to be robbing God, and God does not like people to rob you, and you better be given more. Am I the only one in this place that really wants to see a better carpet in this church? Don't you love the work of God? <laughs> Why, if you were given half of what you could give, half of what you should give, there's no telling what God could do, but God's hands are tied because you won't be giving. Won't you join me in sacrificing for the Lord after all God has done for you? Is this is 10% or 50% too much to ask? Some places actually, I, I, I didn't believe this until I found out a church that did it, but they actually hire professional consultants to go door to door to their parishioners to help them with their finances, financial aid, to see how they can squeeze out more money for the church. Focus on the behavior. Or maybe church attendance has been a little low, so you have a nice, hot, fiery sermon about after all Jesus has done, is it too much to ask? Is it too much to ask for, 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 of God to, to come one Sunday? One day a week, is that too much to ask? And did Jesus go away to his cottage during the summer? Do you ever find Jesus taking a break from the ministry? Things of that sort. 
If you really loved God, if you really were on fire for God, you'd be praying more than you're praying. You'd be reading the Bible more than you're reading. You know what? And maybe if you've been praying more and watching a little bit less TV, maybe your kids wouldn't have turned out so ornery. And if you've been praying more and watching a little bit less TV, stupid Mountain Dew, <laughs> then maybe you wouldn't, uh, you know, you, you wouldn't have had that divorce. That's the thing. You're not doing enough. You're not doing enough. And are you anxious? Do you realize, Christian, do you realize what an insult it is to God when you are anxious? You're really saying, God, you're not strong enough. We don't trust you. I can't put my trust in you. You ought not to be doing that. Stop worrying. Go. Do it. Turn off the worry valve as though it was just that simple. You ought not to be so worried. I read in a book one time a preacher tell a woman who had an eating disorder. She wrote in for this comment. She said, I just don't love myself. This guy responded, this is the law, this is the Nike philosophy. Young lady, the problem with you is not that you don't love yourself enough. You love yourself far too much. Because you're so worried about your appearance. Real Christians, true Christians, Christians filled with the Spirit, aren't so worried about their appearance, and you wouldn't worry about what your body looks like. Your problem is that you love yourself too much. Now, will you just start eating? God gave you food. Don't push it back into his face. The three assumptions. The way, the way you get better is by doing more. The way you change behaviors by making people feel worse. The way you fix a person on the inside is by rearranging their outside. Does it work? No, it does not work. It doesn't work for two fundamental reasons. And it's so important that we, at the beginning of this series, the beginning of this series about how to change, what I want to do here is to blow that kind of thinking up so that when we think about how to change our lives, we are not tempted to go in this route because this is the route that comes natural to the natural mind. So all I want to do this morning is blow this thinking up and there's two things I want to point out which show that that kind of approach to life's problems, be it in your relationship with God or be it in your relationship with your spouse, just does not work. First of all, the law doesn't work for this reason. All change, as we'll see in subsequent weeks, all change fundamentally comes by being saturated with a true picture of God, seeing who God really is, and then seeing who you really are. We'll talk more about that later. But what this approach to life does, what this Nike approach to life's problems does, is it clouds, it clouds, it colors, it fogs up a true picture of God, so you get a false picture of God. If your relationship with God was about your behavior, if your relationship with God was about what you do or what you don't do. If your relationship with God was based on your right behavior, then Paul's got a word for you, and that is this. You'll never be right with God. We're talking about an all-holy God who is fundamentally incompatible with, with, with sin. And so if your stairway to God, if your ladder to God is the ladder of the law by obeying the rules and doing the right things and getting it down just pat, if that's the way you're going to get right with God... Fine, wonderful, go ahead and try it. But know this. Paul says this in Galatians chapter 5. If you screw up, if you're going to do the law, you've got to do the whole law. If, if, if this is the way, if you're going to stand before God on your own turf, and you've got to go all the way with it. That means that you have to, from beginning to end, do all the rules and do them right from morning till night, from birth till death. Do them with perfection. Do them with the right motivation. At the end of every day, you need to ask yourself the question, have you done everything good that you could possibly have done? And have you avoided everything evil that you could possibly avoid? And has your motivation been perfect? And have your thoughts been perfect? Have the inner imaginations of your heart been perfect? 
And if not, you need to know that you're fundamentally incompatible with God. If you're trying to get right with God on the basis of your nice behavior, you'll never experience freedom. You'll always be under condemnation. You'll always be under guilt. You'll always be under shame. And most tragically, you'll never fall in love with God. Not genuinely. You'll fear God. You'll worry about God. You'll, on the outside, obey God. But if that's your picture of God, you'll never have a genuine passion for him. That Bethel student that I mentioned earlier, her fundamental problem was that she had a jaded view of God. A, a, a God who is a probation officer, who's always watching over your shoulder to make sure you do just the right thing. And if you don't do just the right thing, he withdraws his love and withdraws his, 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 his approval on you. And now you've got to start from scratch all over and try to get it back. And it's impossible to love that view of God. One of the central things that Jesus came to do, and it's so important that we see this, one of the central things that Jesus came to do was to blow up, blow sky high, that approach to getting right with God. Through so much of his teaching, through so much of what he did, Jesus was about tearing down the law, tearing down the Nike philosophy as a way of changing yourself, as a way of getting into a relationship with God. So he comes to the Pharisees. The Pharisees are the, are the professionals at the law. They do it right, they think. They do it perfect, they think. And they're pretty proud of it. We go by the letter of the law. We got it all down. And so what Jesus does is he holds up before them a mirror and says, take a good look at yourself. Are you really doing the law all the way? So you're pretty proud of the fact that you don't commit adultery. What? That's good. I, I want to give you a hand. That, that's really great. But I'm wondering, do you ever think about it? Has a thought, does a thought cross your mind? Has it ever crossed your mind? Will it ever cross your mind? And you've got to know that if it ever does cross your mind, as far as your relationship with God is, you might as well, as well have committed adultery. Because sin, any sin, however great or however small, is enough to separate us from God. You want to do, you do your God thing on your own basis? Go ahead, start. But know that you've got to do it perfect. And you're pretty proud of the fact that you're not like the Gentiles. You don't murder other people. You've never murdered other people. You never will murder other people. You'd lose your job if you did that. But do you entertain anger in your heart? Do you ever say to your neighbor, Raka? Which is basically the Semitic equivalent of giving an obscene gesture to a person. Do you ever have that in your heart? Because if you do, you've got to know this. You're as much apart from God as if you murdered somebody. The point of the whole thing, he's, he says this. Okay, you want, you, want to do, you want to do the God thing. You want to get to, before God on the basis of your nice song and dance, your song and pony, your, your pony and dog hoop show or whatever. You want to impress God with your nice behavior? Did I say poop? Your, your pony and dog hoop show. Pony and dog hoop show. I'm so glad we're not under the law around here. Man, I'd be fired. Try this one out if you want to impress God with your behavior. I remember reading this when I was a, first a Christian and it blew me away and I tried it and it made my life very miserable. But Jesus says in Matthew chapter 12, every idle word that a person shall speak, they shall give account thereof on the day of judgment. You want to you be about keeping records? Okay, try this. Every idle word, know this, every idle word and every idle thought and every bad feeling that you're going to have, you're going to account for that on the day of judgment. If you're into keeping records, if you're into balancing the score sheet, that's what you've got to do. And the point of Jesus saying this whole thing, some people read Jesus and they think that, oh, what Jesus came to do was to tighten the belt on the Old Testament. Yeah, God permitted things in the Old Testament, but in the New Testament, he kind of tightened the belt on the whole thing. And so we, whereas the Old Testament, they, uh, you know, 
They were loose on certain things like divorce, but in the New Testament, we're going to crack down on that kind of stuff. Jesus came to crack down on that kind of stuff. But you've got to understand the purpose of Jesus' teaching, the point of his teaching, and the point of the whole thing is, is this. You can't do it. You can't do it. Give up trying. See that you are, in terms of your own behavior, in terms of your own life, separated from God. And the only hope you have, if you have a hope, is to throw yourself at the mercy of the cross. Jesus was trying to explode, blow apart that whole law way of approaching our relationship with God. you got to die to it. The point is this. At the foundation of this series, this has got to be said as clearly as possible. If we're ever going to experience genuine transformation in our life, on the inside, we're going to have to be freed from thinking we need to manipulate it on the outside. If you're ever going to experience the transforming power of God's grace in your life, you're going to need to be convinced. And this is what I'm trying to do. You're going to need to be convinced in your heart that you can't bring about that transformation on your own power. If you're going to begin to experience the supernatural presence of God that can change our fundamental wrong personality traits, if you're going to experience the supernatural, you've got to die to the natural. Give up doing it on your own. And if you're ever going to experience God working in yourself, you're going to have to die to the law which says you can do it all by yourself. See, as long as you think, as long as you suspect, whether you do it explicitly or implicitly, as long as you suspect that there's life in the law, as long as you think that that's what Christianity is really about, you'll never see the beauty of God, the transforming beauty of God who loves you for free. As long as you think that there's, there's, there's somehow energy in that, that there's promises in that, as long as you are primarily motivated by external pressure, that what you do, you do because of threats on you or promises to you, as long as that's your fundamental mode of operation, You'll never see the true God and all of his grace and his unconditional love and his transforming beauty. You'll never see that. As long as your view of Christianity is that it's a duty, primarily a duty, you'll never experience the fun of the whole thing, the joy of the whole thing. And joy transforms people a lot more than duty does. As long as your view of God is that of a probation officer, you'll never see God, not really see God, not in your heart. You'll never see God as your, your transforming Savior. As long as God's your employer who's there to pay you a dollar at the end of a day's wages, you'll never experience God as loving parent or experience God as loving spouse. There'll be no, no more intimacy there, which is why Paul says you've got to die to the law if you're going to have a relationship with Jesus Christ. You've got to die to the law. Be convinced in your heart that there's nothing in that for you. The law doesn't work because it colors a true perception of God. The second thing is that the law doesn't work because the problem of sin is far deeper than what the law could ever touch. Sin isn't caused by ignorance. And so the cure for sin, the sin in our life, the areas of our life that need changing, the cure for it isn't knowledge. It's not threats and the promises of rewards. So reminding people about what they should just do and enforcing it with threats, positive incentives and negative incentives, is not going to fundamentally change the problem of sin. That Bethel student that I told you about, she knew, she knew everything that she ought to be doing. When she went to her pastor, went to her parents, they didn't tell her anything she didn't already know, did they? Did she? Did they? You ought not to be so carnal. You ought to be on fire. You ought to be reading your Bible more. You ought to be this. You ought to be that. You ought to be that. Well, she knew all of that. The problem was that she didn't find it in her heart to do it. It just didn't seem real to her. 
And reminding her with knowledge, telling her what she already knows and enforcing it with positive and negative incentives doesn't change the thing. If knowledge, sheer knowledge could change us, Paul wouldn't have written Romans chapter 7. Because the problem, as we read in Romans chapter 7, is that he knows what to do and he even on one level wants to do it, but he seems powerless to do it. The good that I want to do, I can't do, and the evil that I want to avoid, I know it's evil and I want to avoid it, but that's what I end up doing. The problem is sin is far deeper than that. Ask yourself this question. Did, does knowing that you ought to be more loving make you a more loving person? No, it just condemns you in your unlovingness. The law can never empower, it just condemns. Does knowing and hearing me say, Christian, you ought to forgive, you ought to forgive. If you don't forgive, God's not going to forgive you. You better forgive. What kind of a Christian are you? Call yourself a Christian and you don't forgive. Don't give me this nibby-pamby psychological mimble about how you have hurt wounds and you need inner healing. No, you just got to forgive. Just do it. Is that going to make you all of a sudden, oh, I, okay, I, 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 I forgive the person. <laughs> what it will do is it might, put the, it might put the fear of hell in your heart, and you'll go to that person full of bitterness and anger and strife, and you might say, I forgive you, and there's no reality to it. So you can change the outside, but you can't change the inside. Does knowing that you shouldn't be greedy make you less greedy? Does knowing that you shouldn't be selfish make you less selfish? Does knowing that you ought to be patient make you more patient? Does knowing that you ought to be grateful in all things and everything give thanks, rejoice in the Lord always? And again, I say rejoice. Does that make you happy? If you're really depressed, is that going to do it for you? It won't. It will make you feel more miserable because now you're reminded of just how lousy you are for not being happy. See, the issues of our life, the issues that pertain to change, when we talk about changing, the real issues aren't about the behavior. Behavior's never the issue. And as long as we're preaching at and harping at and threatening behavior, we're barking up the wrong tree. We're talking to the shadow of the person and not the real person. We're, we're, we're shooting at the symptoms and not the problem that's causing the symptoms. Behavior is not the issue. The problem's far deeper than that. The problem is a problem of the heart. You can, if you try hard enough, make your husband or make your wife treat you the right way, send you flowers, send you cards, say all the right things, hold your hand in public even. <laughs> but you can't, with all the nagging in the world, all the fighting in the world, all the bickering in the world, you cannot make them want to do it. You can't make them love doing it. You can't make them do it on their own. You can change the behavior with harping and threats, but you can't change the heart. So the law is there, and the law can tell you that you ought to be holy, you ought to be pious, you ought to be loving, you ought to be happy. And the law, the law, that whole Nike approach to life, can make you feel lousy for not being holy and not being pious, can make you feel lousy for not being happy and not being loving. But what the law can never do, what that external approach can never do, what threats and promises can never do, is make you genuinely love holiness, make you genuinely hunger after God, make you genuinely feel more loving in your life, make you genuinely joyful on the inside. It can't touch that. Behavior is open to manipulation, but the heart is never touched by manipulation. The change that happens in our life has got to happen by some other means. In fact, what happens is you worsen the situation. You just worsen the situation... There's a, a story that's told on the faculty about an art student who came to Bethel years ago, one of these stories years ago, back when I was a kid, kind of thing. And, and, and he came from some farm in South Dakota, and his unique artistic thing was he could do wonderful things with cow pies. He, he, he was a sculptor, and he would sculpture cow pies. 
And, and he could take a cow pie and make it into a wonderful-looking vase and make it into a wonderful-looking face and, and paint it. And, and, and you think it was a gold chalice? You know, it just looks so wonderful. And he was a cow pie sculpture. <laughs> he could be artistic with dung. He could make it look so wonderful. The only problem was he could never get past, he could never get rid of the odor. And what he would tell his prof was, you know, oh, shucks, you just got to get used to that. <laughs> just got to get used to it. You got to pretend like it doesn't smell. You got to pretend like it's not what it really is, because what it really is is cow manure. You can, make, you can dress it up and make it look pretty and make it look fancy, but it still stinks. And so it is. When we have this approach, when we have this approach to life, you can take a person with a wounded heart, a bitter heart, an unforgiving heart, and through shame and through guilt and through manipulation, you can dress it up and get them to act differently. And they look nice and they look pretty and they look holy and they look sanctified and they look spiritual. But on the inside, it's still rotting, isn't it? It's still rotting. And now all you've done is you've taken all the things that need to be addressed and you've sent them into hiding. The reason why you're depressed now isn't hiding because you're acting joyful. And the reason why you're so angry is, is now hidden because you're acting like you're not angry. The reason why you're so bitter is, is now hidden. We can't address it. We can't speak to it. And you, you, can't, you don't have the opportunity to feel loved in the midst of your bitterness because now you're acting like you're forgiving. The only solution, and this is the foundational thing I'm doing this morning, is to blow that up as high as we can blow it up and blow it up as loud as we can blow it up. Because before we can begin to learn what it is to walk in the Spirit, that's what we'll be talking about. Before we can learn, to, to learn what it is to, to be transformed by the grace of God, we've got to blow sky high this idea that what it's really about is the, uh, is the behavior. What it really is about are the behavioral issues. The only way your heart is ever touched is not by rules and threats. The only way your heart is ever touched, the only way this thing is ever blown up is the way Paul blows it up in Romans chapter 8, verse 1. There is therefore now no condemnation to them which are in Christ. There is therefore now no condemnation. Because what that does is this. It tells you that in Christ, in Christ, whether you come to church looking happy or whether you come to church looking miserable isn't a relevant issue. And if it's not a relevant issue, the only relevant issue is, do you experience in the midst of your misery, do you experience in the midst of your depression, the grace of God who loves you anyways, the forgiveness of God and the blessing of God? That's the only relevant issue. And so it has to be sort of a manifesto here at Woodland Hills. If what we're about is the truth of, of, of who we are in Christ, if it's not an issue with Christ, it can't be an issue with us. And so we have to declare out loud and set ourselves in resolve to this. And no one gets any points for being happy here, and no one gets any debits for being sad here, because that's just not an important issue. What it means to be in Christ without condemnation means that however holy your behavior happens to look, or however unholy your behavior happens to, to look, is not a relevant issue, not when it comes to changing you, not when it comes to revolutionizing your being. The only relevant issue, the only thing that counts, the only thing that's fundamentally important is do you experience the love and grace and power of the Spirit of God in your life in the midst of your unholiness? And so we have to declare at Woodland Hills our manifesto is we have no vested interest in trying to make you look holier than you are. No vested interest in trying to manipulate some kind of holy behavior to cover up the dung in your life. We simply can't at Woodland Hills be about being artistic with dung. There's nothing in it. You can make a good-looking church that way, but spiritually it's going to smell. Because dung is dung. 
In Christ, there's no condemnation. And what that means is that how much you give or don't give, how much you volunteer or don't volunteer, what you do and what you don't, what kind of past you bring here, whether it's spotted or whether it's spotless, what kind of issues you have or what issues you don't have, however problem-filled your life is or however problem-free your life is, just is not an important issue. It's not worth addressing. That's a result of what is an important issue. And what is an important issue is this. Do you see, do you experience the arm of God around you in a loving, unconditional way in the midst of all of your dung, in the midst of all of your sin, in the midst of all the sadness, in the midst of the jaded past that you have? Because, see, if you experience that, change begins to take place. Transformation begins to take place. Because that is the one thing that begins to touch the heart and change the soul and revolutionize our being. In Christ, that whole approach, that whole system of thought, which says that you change people by making you feel worse about where they're at, that whole system of thought which says just do it, that whole system of thought which makes it look as though behavior really was the issue, in Christ, that whole thing's been done away with. Colossians 2, 15, the law, the rules, the threats, the promises, the rewards, the positive incentives and the negative incentives. This is a paraphrase now. That has all been done away with on the cross. In Christ, the one thing that matters is are you open to receiving his grace and his love? Some people worry. They say, well, if you take away the law, if you just said, if you say what you just said, lift up the law, take away the external manipulation, take away the guilt, a lot of people are going to stop doing stuff. I mean, the only reason people do stuff, you know, singing choirs and stuff like that is because you make them feel guilty for not doing it. How are you going to run a church? The answer is, at this point, you've got to trust God. God's the one who's responsible for doing what I can never do with any kind of sermon, what you can never do with any kind of nagging, and that has changed the heart of people. And it's God's church, and God's got to raise up people to fill in. One of the perennial temptations of pastors is to not trust God on that because it gets a little hairy sometimes. And so when you don't trust God, you resort to manipulation. We are going to be about being free from manipulation, being free from trying to coerce, trying to paint the dung and make it look like it's not dung. We want to be about proclaiming that there's no condemnation in Christ and letting things look the way they really are, however good or bad that might be. This morning, maybe, I don't know where you're at, but maybe it is the case that you have been indoctrinated with that Nike philosophy. You still talk grace, you still talk power of God, but you know in your life it's not real. That the reason why you do whatever you do and the reason why you don't do what you don't do is external reasons. You've always just sort of done things as the buttons have been pushed on your life. The Lord wants you to be free and experience genuine transformation. And I want to invite you this morning to come forward as, as we're dismissed and pray with somebody who will be up here with you to experience that internal transformation of grace in your life. Let's stand and close in prayer. Lord, I thank you for the freedom that we have in you, that in Christ there's no condemnation. And God, I pray that that would be just a, a banner, Lord, that that would be a banner of this church and that, the, that, that, that attitude, that approach, God, would be always prevalent among us, Lord God. Free us from feeling like it's our job to fix one another, Lord. Free us, Lord God, to have the kind of unconditional love towards each other that you have towards us. And God, by your spirit, free us to see that unconditional love of you towards us, Lord God. There are people, Lord God, who are, as Paul said, slaves to the law, slaves to that kind of thinking, Lord. I pray, God, this morning that they'd be freed. Set us free by the power of your spirit, Lord God, and begin to evoke genuine change and transformation in our life. We ask this in your name. 
go forth in the power of God.